This is Richard Stanley, writer, filmmaker, anthropologist, whatever. And you're listening to Without Your Head. Without your head, I'm Nasty Neil, and I'm joined by Richard Neil, star of Prodigy. It's uh, good to have you here. Hey, man. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, for people not aware, can you explain to them, uh, without spoiling it, what a Prodigy is about? Uh, without spoiling it, uh, let's see. Um, Prodigy. Prodigy. Um, well, Prodigy, the word itself, refers to this young girl who's about nine years old. And uh, she's, I guess, a child prodigy in that she's her mind. She's sort of um, off the charts, her intelligence. And she has special powers, um, telekinetic powers that she can, um, I guess, wreak havoc and uh, um is responsible for um, an event in her past that has led her to be basically a prisoner in this military compound. Um, there's a, um, a colonel figure sort of on the surface, at least uh, sort of the villain of the piece. And uh, there are other military personnel and some therapists who've been um, examining her and, and uh, kind of worried about um the ramifications of having such powers. And anyway, I'm brought in, I'm a therapist um, who has um, worked with troubled youth in the past. And I'm brought in through into this compound by this um, former colleague of mine from college who now works for the military and as a sort of last ditch attempt to kind of save her and rescue her from the, um, uh, the machinations that, that seem to be uh, conspiring to basically do her in here, mm-hmm. all it's in a, the name a, of um, you know, you know, national security. Mm-hmm. It's a really unique film because it's uh, really uh, heavily dialogue driven. Uh, yeah, so, I hope I didn't make it. it. I just uh, hopefully nobody, everybody else didn't turn off. There. It was such a dry description of it. Um, <laughs> no, no. But it is a, it is a, you know, it is a, you know, there's a lot of therapy sessions. It's sort of a cat and mouse game between myself, this um, therapist who's who's kind of a loner, a lone wolf, so to speak. He himself has had a certain trauma in his past that we discovered during the course of the film that connects him to this patient. They have a sort of common um, um, pain that's, that occurred in their past that connects them in a way and that gives him a, a kind of insight into how to deal with her. And he's, he spends a lot of his time as a loner playing chess as sort of his therapy. And so this is, this is kind of, a, it works as a kind of a metaphor, this sort of chess match of two minds to, and, and, and she exposes a kind of weakness during our play, our chess game. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can take advantage and, and basically reveal the child within to make her m- more sympathetic. And so the other forces can see, well, maybe not all hope is lost. Maybe there's a, a little girl who really needs help. Yeah. yeah. That's a really but there's a lot of, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead, Ben. I was going to say, that's a really powerful scene, the chess scene, and uh, a real turning point uh, in the movie where I think uh, you see different sides of both characters. Yeah, well, I think so. I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, it, there's a lot of dialogue, but I think there's also 
tension in the film, especially oh, the scenes I, I leave her, her room and, and then I have to confront these people who are very skeptical and I've got to win them over. It's kind of like the, um, the directors of, of reference, the film, 12 angry men, you know, the, uh, where the jurors are all deliberating and there's one guy who refuses to sentence this young boy to the death sentence and the, he has to win them over one by one and in a way that happens in the course of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, real quick, actually, uh, are, are you a chess player? I, I, you know, I play chess. I'm uh-huh. certainly, um, I, I, I've enjoyed chess. But I'm not one of these people that obsessed with get. You know, I knew I knew people in high school that uh-huh. this kid was just a mastermind at it. It's just so. I think it does lead that to a bit of insanity. What was it, the, the very famous one? Uh, oh yeah, Bobby you know, Fisher. Uh, Bob, Bobby Fisher. Yeah, yeah, Bobby Fisher. You know, kind of lost his mind. <laughs> <laughs> I think that could happen to you if you get so into it. Yeah, that yeah. You I can was just get so obsessive. Are you? Uh-huh. Are you that way? Uh, not obsessive, but I, I was at, I was at chess club. Uh, I I have my trophy from sixth grade chess club. But uh, when I was oh, in high school, yeah, when I was in high school, I I did chess club briefly because uh, the actually like the chess club uh, teacher was that way. He carried a, a chess uh, chess set in the back of his pocket, and he would recreate like uh, Napoleon, like famous Napoleon uh, chess matches. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And I remember just sitting there, and I was like, I don't want to be here. And so, <laughs> so I left. <laughs> Did he have any social life at all? Did he have a personal <laughs> no, life? No, I, I, I don't believe so. I think he, because he, he would recreate the chess matches with himself, which I never quite understood. But. Well, then, then he probably was the uh, the, archi- the, 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 the the archetype or the uh, the person that, uh, you know, this guy Fonda is somewhat like, in a way. You know, you just kind of remove yourself from society, and you just get so obsessive yeah about these moves yeah uh, is there is there any similarities between uh, fonda and yourself well um on the surface for sure there's I, i'm a father as well of a 16 year old daughter um so i'm a very involved parent and uh, and there's definitely that paternal aspect to fonda and i think that's that was the key for me, um, just being a very empathetic caretaker type person um, who sees a child, you know, and just um, I see that child within, despite all of the um, hostility or veneer of, of coldness that she initially exudes. I, I, I think that's the key for me was being that empathetic, understanding father figure. And, uh, and then he's described early on as not caring very much about his appearance or he's a little disheveled and he doesn't care about his hair. And that wasn't very hard for me to embrace because <laughs> I'm a little disheveled myself. Uh-huh. But it was more of the, that the sort of sense of empathy or compassion that you mm-hmm. that you try to, you know, always see the, the good and, and uh, the heart within and... Uh, that's what you're leading with your heart. You know, I don't want to get too new agey here, but it's, uh, that was really his, his key is that let's, let's get at what's really going on here emotionally for this child and let's expose it. And that's, that's, and how can you deny that when you see that vulnerability? And I have to bring that out in the course of the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, how did you get involved in the, in the film? Well, just the, uh, boring traditional way of auditioning against the, you know, a million other guys and, you know, beating them up in the audition process. No, I mean, they, they really, supposedly the directors liked my initial read that brought me back for a callback. I read with Savannah who they, you know, initially the uh, film was, um, they had written it for a young boy and they couldn't find a, a, a young male actor that could handle this, this sort of dialogue or emotional uh, intensity uh, that uh, they, they, they expanded the casting up to, uh, to a girl and, and they found Savannah Lyles and um, completely were won over by her. And so for the callback, I was brought in to uh, read with Savannah and uh, make sure we had the right chemistry. And then it was a done deal. Uh, we had a couple months of um, 
uh, preparation and, and one of those things where you just call Alex every couple of weeks and say, is this film really happening? Is it going <laughs> to happen? Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's, it's what happens in a lot of independent films. It's like, is the money there? Are you guys working? Are you working on the sets? Is this really going to happen? What are the dates? And so, you know, there's a luxury there because you're having a couple of months to really work on the script and, and uh, at least, you know, you get your lines down and, and then you think about the emotional beats and, uh, and uh, so you have the time to ruminate on the role and actually um, create a character. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now you mentioned Savannah and like, uh, it is unusual to see, you know, a young actor in, in uh, or such a I said, dialogue heavy. And I don't mean that as a negative thing because it totally hold, held my attention. It's just, you know, yeah. which I think is uh, uh, shows the strength of the movie to hold your attention. You know, it's really mostly between two people. Um, what was that like? What was it like to work with her? Oh, uh, she was great. She really was. I mean, she was really prepared. Um, her mom worked with her. Uh, as did the directors, um, and she had an acting coach on the side. Um, I mean, she really is a nine-year-old girl when we started shooting, which is almost two years ago now. Yeah. And um, um, there's a there's dialogue and, and there's words that she didn't understand what they meant. So she, you know, it's you know, in the very practical, technical side, she had to know exactly what she was saying and why you're saying it. Mm-hmm. And they have to roll off the tongue. So it's a technical skill to have that stuff that just pours out of your, out of your mouth that, that feels just genuine and and, and natural. And, uh, you know, the only downside is, is that when you're a child actor, there's a limitation to the amount of hours that you can uh, work on a set. Mm-hmm. So for most of my close-ups, um, I was having to deliver my dialogue to a stand-in, a double um that sometimes was her stand-in or the the um, script supervisor. Um, she was on the set and she had to scooch down uh, to be the right eye length for me. And uh, I would deliver my lines to this thirty-year-old um, Asian woman instead of a nine-year-old freckle-faced girl. You know, and, <laughs> right. and so there's a, that there's a little <laughs> suspension of disbelief there added to the suspension of disbelief you already have to work with. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, when you, re- when you rehearse enough and, uh, it doesn't really matter, you, you know, cause you know, I've worked with green screen where you're pretending to have, you know, some cyborg monster <laughs> right. looking at you, you know, so it doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> After a while, it's all ridiculous. So, um, you just have to deliver what you think is, um, a genuine connected performance. Um, but that's the downside is that she's not always going to be there. But mm-hmm. the scenes, the scenes with her really were, were really nice, really well uh, rehearsed and uh, pretty easily done. We just had to figure out the blocking because um, there's a limitation. You know, the um, I don't know if you know this, but Alex and Bri- and Brian, the co-directors, they were also production designers and and uh, they built the sets themselves. I mean, they were, they were, we shot in this uh, old abandoned animal shelter out in Riverside, California. And uh, they had basically uh, created these two rooms, the interrogation room, and then there's this uh, military control room. And so they built them themselves. And, uh, and, and you know, when you have these rooms that are, that are actually with four walls, um, you're very limited in terms of uh, camera movement or lighting. And uh, so you have to create that dynamic in the scene and uh, figure out blocking. And uh, you get very creative when you're limited that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that like to have two uh, like co-directors? Do they butt heads at all? Or is it? Uh, no, it's, it's, no, not with each other. Uh-huh. <laughs> there was a little bit of butting heads occasionally. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but not with the, the, them. They're, I guess they're best friends from USC. And uh, they really have a... a, a, a yin yang type dynamic to them um alex was the more gregarious one who was very hands-on in in terms of uh, working with the actors and uh, brian um is a little more reserved and uh, he he also uh handled all the technical um as far as the special effects he's the master of uh, doing the cgi special effects and post-production mm-hmm. uh, but, but the two of them would confer after a take and they would look at the monitor playback 
and discuss and discuss with the actors. And they were always uh, very simpatico. I mean, they they knew exactly what they wanted. Um, they really did. I mean, they had they had spent a couple of years with the script, so they had really storyboarded it and kind of uh, already saw the movie in their mind in many ways mm -hmm. they had really it's it's a testament to preparation you know mm -hmm. like you cannot prepare enough and they really did prepare for the film yeah uh do you uh when you, you were talking earlier about you know independent films and sometimes they happen sometimes they don't how about that uh, uh people prepare like uh directors on the independent level uh do you find some people uh, are like uh alex and brian or or do you find uh, they usually aren't as prepared? Um, well, it depends. I mean, usually they are prepared because I think it's so expensive. I mean, you have mm -hmm. to pay all the actors and the crew and uh, location and all that and feed them all. And, and there's a time restraint. I mean, when there's um, a budget and it's coming out of the director's slash producer's pocket and time mm -hmm. is money, they know they better be prepared because it's going to cost them usually pretty tight because of the financial restraints and, uh, um, the, uh, I mean, there, there have been times I've worked on some low budget films where things seem a little too loosey goosey and they're trying to improvise or create a scene and, and start playing and uh it's usually when the director is not the one that's financially responsible for the production mm -hmm. so uh <laughs> um then the producers come in and say you know we have to move on that's usually when a really good assistant director is uh you know because usually the assistant director is the hard ass on the movie on yeah. any set they're the bad guy they're the ones with the walkie-talkie and say you know we've got to move on. I mean, I did this, this film called medicine men and we had a brilliant, um, assistant director who's worked with some big budget films and, uh, his name was Nick and, um, terrific. And this is a first time director, um, mm -hmm. who, um, um, even though it, he was paying for, or his family was paying for the film, um, you know, we, he would always want another take. Always, the director always wanted another take, and we'd be shooting till two in the morning. And we're talking about a union shoot where he's having to pay overtime, and it's costing you know every every minute's costing hundreds of dollars, or every hour is costing another five hundred dollars or whatever it's mm -hmm. going to cost. And it's it's like the budget is not there, and and uh, even for a low budget film, and you know, he's like, you know, the director would say, so um, how are we doing, Nick? How are we doing on time, Nick? Well, we're on the K part of fucked right now, so you better move on. <laughs> so, so for me to go into the salty language here, that's essentially what Nick had said, and I thought it was brilliant. We're in the K part of fucked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you have to know what you want, and, and you know, a lot of directors, especially first-time directors, want to experiment. And, and they always think, oh, man, i got to get that Paul Thomas Anderson shot. And, and if I can move the camera over here, how interesting would that be? You know, they feel like they're, mm -hmm. they're creating the next Citizen Kane or something, you know. Right. And so you try to get they're trying to get very creative and their imaginations are wonderful, which is what makes them artists. You know, they mm -hmm. they 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 they're getting very enthusiastic and inspired and say, oh, that was so good. What if we did it from over here? And what if we uh, had it into a two shot or what if we did the um from overhead would that lend something to it and they, they start creating in the moment and they don't realize how much time is being spent and you're already mm -hmm. 13 14 hour day and all the crews looking at you like you got to be kidding me man what mm -hmm. are we doing here and everyone's exhausted and nobody wants that pizza delivered at two in the morning and we have that early you know <laughs> dawn shot coming up the next day uh -huh. <laughs> they get carried away but that wasn't like that for Prodigy. Mm -hmm. That's good. It was, uh, it was uh, interesting because I was just at Boston Underground Film Festival last week, and there was a documentary called Mex Man, and uh, it 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 followed a, a first time director who's this has so much uh, imagination, and the the documentary kind of paints the the people he's collaborating with as you know the villains because they're very pragmatic about like. You know, we actually have 
to do this within a budget and have to actually make it happen and stuff. And so it was just kind of interesting how they played off the the one guy as the hero and the other guys as the villains. But at the same time, when I was watching it, like, you could see how frustrating it would be for the other two guys. And, uh, you know, imagination is amazing and, and great and uh, you need it. But at the same time, you still have to be pragmatic and, you know, make this happen. So I guess it's kind of a balance. Yeah, absolutely. It's balanced. I mean, it's, you know, this, this business is expensive. I mean, you're um, shooting and you're paying people and, and uh, you don't want to have to go into a huge debt by making this film. I mean, you don't want to go into a debt. I mean, you can get carried away. You're like, you know, it's like a huge student college loan suddenly that, um, and you have to be practical. You have this much money to spend. And uh, this is what we've allotted for this day and this day and this day. And maybe we have one or two days extra. We can possibly, if we have to, squeeze in. But you really try to cover a certain amount of pages. I mean, that's why they're saying, how far are we? Are are we behind? Are we behind schedule here? Mm -hmm. And um, that's why we're, you know, that's why they had me having to work with the stand-in. We had to get those shots done. I couldn't Mm -hmm. wait till Savannah was... um, back on the set we needed a certain amount of scenes shot um for us to not fall behind schedule yeah so there is that it's you know you have to make that it's sort of a devil's bargain you have to you know stay you need that two sides you need that creative and imaginative imaginative side for sure because otherwise you'll make a you know boring piece of thing (laughs) that nobody wants to watch but at the same time you have to you know, you have to have the funds. I mean, you have to have the funds. Mm-hmm. So you said it was uh, two months you had to prepare because, you know, things are coming together. How long did it actually uh, take to shoot the movie? Just two weeks. Just two straight weeks. I mean, the first week was primarily just me and Savannah in that one room. We we knocked off all the scenes that were just us. And then the other cast members, playing the military personnel, the other therapists, uh, were in the other room, and uh, I had a certain amount of scenes with them. I may have I may have had two days off in there, just because they have some scenes within the, within themselves, mm-hmm. uh, or just maybe one day off, and I would come in the other day in the afternoon. But I would have all my scenes with them, and uh, then Savannah would have that time off, and then we had that one um, those two scenes that were shot outside in a park that sort of book in the movie that we shot in one afternoon. Um, it's the film, it's the scene uh, of me basically being met with by my former associate, my former associate who brings me into this mission. And at the very end, you see me at the same location playing chess with Savannah and, uh, with secret service in the background. And so we shot that and, you know, I had let some facial, hair grow and uh sure. for the um so that was uh showtime for the end of this end of the scene so we shot the very end of the scene that that exterior day first then i went into this restroom and, and uh, shaved and <laughs> uh be, we shot the very beginning of the movie uh-huh that's the you know necessity <laughs> the mother of invention there Right, right. Yeah, it's easier than uh, now. Hey, Richard, grow a beard so we can film the end of the movie. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. so what, what did you uh, What did you think when you saw the finished movie with everything edited um, together and scoring? It's and interesting because they played around with different edits. That's when they got to be a little bit creative because they had all the material, and then they were they were playing around with different editing, different shots. And um, we actually did a little bit extra shooting. Um, he wanted to create a, um, a backstory. If you, if you notice in the beginning um, credits, the, the titles of the film, there's um, footage of like home movies of myself with my wife and little daughter. And then there's shots of Savannah and her mom that he shot and made it look like it was on Super 8 or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so we shot that, you know, after the initial screening for the cast and crew, he went back, Alex, it was, I think it was more Alex's idea that he thought we needed a little bit of more 
padding in the film, a little backstory. Um, and then also, they also play with the idea of it being in black and white. Um, you know, this, that's this kind of a creative thing as well as trying to, well, maybe we can make it all black and white mm-hmm. and that can cover up any sort of, uh, matching color post issues they may have had, uh, because it is a low budget film mm-hmm. and they both went to USC. So they have high standards and, um, they played with the idea of it being black and white. And then I think they've now decided, especially once it was picked up by Gravitas for distribution, that it'd be better off to keep it in color. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there were several versions that had come out initially, sort of a focus group screenings to see what people thought. And they took some notes from other people, colleagues, directors, you know, mentors that they knew. And uh, that's why they got this, this version here. I don't, remember, I don't uh, remember your initial question. About, you know, watching it for the first time, you know, after it's edited together. And, oh, uh, yeah. Well, it's always nerve-wracking watching yourself on a big screen. It's yeah. nerve-wracking because you see every little imperfection and uh, you're just so, you know, narcissistic. You just watch yourself. It's a really disgusting experience. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of, it's, I don't know, maybe other people are more you know, more happy about watching. I, I just see every little imperfection or something I could have done better. And you come away with a sense <laughs> of self-loathing, you know, but pe- people are very, you know, and you don't believe anybody around you, even your, you know, your family or my daughter. Oh, dad, you were great. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're just suspicious of everybody's compliments. <laughs> At least that's my stick mind. I just don't, I don't trust anybody. <laughs> Right, about right, this value. Right. I mean, and then how do you really look at something you've been part of for so long? How mm-hmm. do you see it objectively? Because you've right. lived it. Mm-hmm. You've, you've memorized, you've seen it all. You know, all the nonsense that went behind the scenes and you see everything that, you know, that, that magic that people experience as a film viewer, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, that's the problem with me as, as, as an actor. And I'm so jaded. I've seen, you know, thousands of movies. I'm a total film geek. And so most of the time I watch films and I do, I'm looking at the camera angle. I'm watching the actor's choices all the time. Like, oh, the actor's doing that there and this there. And I'm constantly analyzing films and why they're doing what they're doing. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so I'm a, I'm a terrible audience member because I can't really, I mean, yeah. I, even watching watch a classic movies. like, is, is even watching a classic film like Singing in the Rain or, uh, you know, you know, Groundhog Day, which I've seen a billion times with my daughter. Uh-huh. I mean, I still like, oh, how did they, Howard Ramis do this? And such an interesting shot here. And the editing here is just so brilliant. So, you know, I, you know, I love films. I just love films. But um, it's hard for me to watch myself and, and get lost in the movie. I mean, I'm just really want, I want the audience to like it. And um, I'm really hoping that, uh, people get something out of it. Like the, you know, and the filmmakers get to make another film. I get to work in another film. So I see, you know, as an actor, you're always like, okay, so what am I doing tomorrow? This film is wrapped today, but do I have a set or <laughs> do I have a job tomorrow? Right. So you're always, it's sort of that bittersweet feeling like, okay, that's in the can. Now, what do I do? Uh-huh. <clears throat> uh-huh. Do you, do you actually have something uh, in the works? Um, well, not really right this moment. I have a few things coming out. I just did a, um, another, uh, video, um, well, it's not a video game. It's a, a graphic anthology series that I, I, I play a character in this, um, Tim Miller directed, um, um, piece, uh, it's a series for, for Netflix uh, Tim Miller directed Deadpool and, uh, David Fincher is actually the executive producer on it. Oh, wow. Um, so, I've, I've, uh, and that's supposed to come out. These things are ridiculous how long they, t- they can take, but it may not even be out mm-hmm. till 2019, hopefully before wow. then. And, uh, then I have a couple of films. I just wrapped, um, this one called Clyde Cooper, which is sort of a, a sci-fi film noir hybrid. Uh, uh, it's kind of a weird film by this director named Peter Daskaloff, and it's uh, I, I think it could be an interesting movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very um, 
uh, it just seems very relevant to our times. Mm-hmm. And then I have a, another couple of films, one called Nothing Like the Sun, which is a 1940s period piece, sort of a post-depression era um, piece. I play the father of the lead in that. So um, I've got some other things in the works. Um, mm-hmm. And I do um, video games. Um, I did uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, The Frozen Wilds last year, and I've got other couple things that are pending. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Now, how did you, how did how did you how do you fall into that into uh, doing you know, voiceovers for video games? Um, well, like everything else, you know, one thing leads to another. Sure. I, I I I've always wanted to do. You know, people. You say, oh, you have a voice, you have a voice, uh-huh. you should, you know, do voiceover. <laughs> and, and, and I, I took, I took, um, classes and, uh, got a demo reel together and, and shopped around for an agent and, uh, you know, it, to do commercial voiceovers is, is incredibly um, competitive and, uh, I've, I've done, you know, a handful of spots, but it's, it seems easier for me as an actor to uh, get into video games and, uh, um, play characters. It's, it's much more fun as well to actually act using your voice instead of being a, you know, a voice in a 30 second commercial. Um, sure. but, uh, um, you know, just auditioning and uh, and then lucking out and getting the gig. Um, I've got a couple of jobs this week coming up. Um, um, one for a, I'm doing a narration for a biographical film, but uh, I, I really enjoy um, the video games just because it's it's it's, it's so um, primal in terms of our acting um, tools. It's it's mm-hmm. just total total suspension of disbelief and 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 playing just playing pretend and uh, especially um when you know for the horizon zero dawn game i got to be in a motion capture suit for a couple of months oh cool and and that that was so cool man basically you're turned into a cartoon you know like uh-huh. out of roger rabbit you're literally turned into a cartoon and uh um you know you're w- walking around in this motion capture suit it's kind of like a an astronaut space suit and you have this gear on your head with a light shining in your face, it's filming your facial expressions. So they're capturing your, 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 your mouth movements and, and the expression in your eyes. And then you're turned into a cartoon. You know, I, I made a joke about it when I was on the set, like a, they showed me a, the design, uh, the illustration of the character I was playing, which was this um, kind of Inuit warrior chieftain. And uh, he looked like, Dwayne Johnson's just total muscle bound, huge guy. I go, wow, man, I'm going to have to start doing some push-ups here. And he said, no, 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 don't worry about it. We've got the, the illustrators are handling that part. Don't worry about that mm-hmm. because anyway, <laughs> uh, but it, it was a blast. You know, you get to work with uh, other actors. Uh, some are just uh, voice actors. I don't, I don't mean to disparage their backgrounds, but they really do mm-hmm. exclusively do voice acting and then others come from a more uh, film and TV world, and uh, some, uh, um, you know, are stunt people. And so there's this incredible um, uh, other world where um, people do this voice acting. Like the, the woman I, I worked with, who's the, the heroine of Horizon Zero Dawn, Ashley Birch, who um, is, I don't think she's even 25 or 26 now, but she has this huge following. And she's been playing the games since she was four or five and now is a designer of the games. And uh, she works for Nickelodeon and, and she has this massive following and uh, she does a lot of little girl voices and, and sort of anime type voices. And uh, that's all she does is she writes um, for Nickelodeon and she does voice acting. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just amazing that, to me, you know, coming from the theater background and doing the traditional things as an actor, that you can just do that for a living. Mm-hmm. So you said, uh, you know, that you just love movies. So what were some of the movies like uh, that you watch and made you want to uh, make movies, become an actor? Uh, well, I guess when I was uh, really, really young, 
um, you know, we were watching movies on TV and, um, I remember just totally digging, um, James Cagney. Uh-huh. Um, I thought, you know, and, you know, you sort of romanticize the tough guy mm-hmm. thing when you're, you know, Cagney was just so charismatic and, uh, in those films like, uh, um, the roaring twenties or angels with dirty faces. And, um, you know, I like the John Garfield and, uh, um, or Paul Muni. They, you know, they made me a criminal or, uh, I was a fugitive of a, of a chain gang. Um, those are the earliest films. And then later on, um, when I really started watching films as a, as a aspiring actor, I think it was Brando. And, and uh, when I first saw on the waterfront, Mm-hmm. That completely blew my mind. I mean, this was a uh, acting of a whole nother world. Yeah. I mean, it just seemed like, oh my God, how do you mm-hmm. do that? Mm-hmm. They really I changed mean, uh, acting then, in movies after that too. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, you see on the yeah. waterfront, it's like nothing. You can't. Uh, what is everybody else doing? I mean, even you know, you see, you know, what is Henry Fonda or Jimmy Stewart doing? Uh, Robert Mitchum, and they're just playing themselves. And you see Brando, it's like what? And, and then, you know, and then even a film like Last Tango in Paris, I mean, and you're, you're wondering, what, where does that fit into film history? I mean, is he just playing himself? Is, just, is this just therapy? Is that acting as therapy? That he's just revealing who he is and all of his sick mind and, and, and sensuality and everything thrown into this role? And, and in a way, I think that people said you were watching Brando probably... Um, uh, you know, energized and motivated actors, but also probably destroyed a lot of actors because all of people just want to copy Brando or mm-hmm. em- they emulated Brando so much that, that he just, everybody wanted to, to be that revelatory and that, you know, wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, you know, people like Paul Newman were like, well, you know, what is Brando doing? Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's in awe of Brando, especially those early films. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, uh, like I said, it did change uh, how people acted. It was the you know ushered in the method acting. Yeah, yeah. Instead of just uh, being present, um, it seemed like uh, something else. It seems transformative. There was um, something that was um, dangerous and uh, and. Um, surprising about what he was what he was doing and he was so um compelling to watch and you wonder why that was it was just because he was so good looking and he had such presence but he also seemed to be so present in the moment that he was really listening and nothing was calculated that you never were sure what he would do there was always an element of surprise and danger about his work so I think that's that's. I think if you can take anything away from that as an aspiring actor, I think that's that's what you should try to emulate to be that present and that surprising. I think that's the trick of good acting, anyway, is is to, to keep people surprising. I mean, I think people like um, um, Malkovich and uh, Sean Penn have been able to do that, and you know, there's so many good actors now. I mean, Jessica Lange in the movie Francis. I remember us being in theater school seeing that film and just like, wow. Jessica Lang was amazing in that film. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a weird question, but the show is primarily horror. But I myself like uh, all movies. To me, if it's good, I, I like it. But uh, do you have any? Uh, are you yeah. a horror movie fan? And do you have any favorite horror movies? Well, uh, there certainly have been some great horror, horror films. I remember in high school, The Exorcist. I saw The Exorcist for the first time. Mm-hmm. I and it's probably cliche to say that, but it just so creeped me out. I remember not even be able to uh, walk upstairs in my house because I was so afraid. <laughs> um, you know, in the uh, Fincher Seven, I think oh, it's great. Uh, there's there's uh, been so many great. I mean, obviously, Silence of the Lambs, I guess, is a horror film, and yeah. in in a way, Prodigy. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the film that people kind of mm-hmm. consider a little bit of a Hannibal Lecter with Savannah's child uh, role. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Which is, uh, 
that's what I thought when I first started watching it. Uh, but it's totally, it's much different. But it is kind of that same idea with the uh, the therapist and the uh, the dangerous. Right. Uh, which I always like. Uh, that's what I always like about Science of Lambs is uh, above the other sequels is because uh, he's very dangerous, but he's you know he's uh, he's behind well not bars, but he's in a cell, so you know he can't get out. And there's something about that, like that he's so dangerous that he can't even like have any interaction with anybody. And it's uh, actually similar <laughs> to the prodigy. Yeah. I think right, that's scarier right. than when he, than when he's out, uh, in the later ones. Yeah. Yeah. Hopkins was just so good. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, ex- and exorcist, I don't think any, uh, any exorcism movie has ever come, you know, even close to the exorcist. And like the, you know, it's you know, it's like thirty years later or forty years later, and just none of them are. I think same with Jaws. I think you know, there's no shark movies, oh, yeah. anything like Jaws, and there's no Exorcist. Movies. Oh, I know, Jaws was amazing. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that, and then the acting in Jaws, and all those yeah. actors were just so yeah. good. That's, yeah, that's uh, to me, that's really what makes a movie is the the three of them uh, together, and they're yeah. so different, and then the inter- interaction. That's okay. true. That's, you got Scheider and. Um, uh, uh, Richard Dreyfus and uh, Shaw, right? Robert Shaw. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just the There's scene with that. Be- just a- you go on. Good. No, you go ahead. I was say the scene of them. Uh, you know, when they're comparing the, you know, the the battle with the scars, and then they start to sing and stuff. Like to me, that's the best scene of the movie. Yeah, yeah. It makes me want to see that film again right now. <laughs> yeah, and I live not far you know, where they uh, filmed it. So. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I live in- you're in Massachusetts, right? You're in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, I live on Cape Cod, which is close to. Oh, Martha great! Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it up there. We were just there. In fact, you know, right now, this past week, that's why I'm calling you from New York. We're about to go back to Los Angeles. I've been on a college tour with my daughter, and we actually went a little bit in that area. We went up to Boston, in Amherst. Um, we went to Emerson and then a Hampshire college in Amherst. And so we saw a little bit of that country, but unfortunately didn't make it up there to the Cape Cod or Martha's Vineyard, but I love it up there. Yeah, that's a good area. Actually, I was, uh, when I was at the Boston underground, underground, it's such a long thing to say Boston underground film festival last week. That was uh, near Emerson. It was, uh, in Cambridge, uh, near Harvard. And yeah. Stuff, so. mm-hmm. Right. Was, right by the commons there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, she, she's interested in Emerson. We're checking it out. Mm-hmm. Sort of a, a more of a uh, not as intense as NYU as far as a, a city experience, but you're still in the city. Mm-hmm. You know, Boston is still a. It seems a, a somewhat of a more a manageable city in many ways than New York. New York can be so overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the public transportation is good in Boston and all those areas, and you can take the T all around. And uh, that's things really aren't o- talking about. Yeah, that's what I do. I go up there and just take the T everywhere, uh, or Uber if it's somewhere a little far away. But yeah, it's it's a nice city. Yeah. You know, things aren't open as late as New York, though. Right, that's what I worry about with my daughter. <laughs> right. You could be so in Brooklyn at two in the morning. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, just uh, for lover of films, there's there's some great theaters up in at Coolidge Theater in um, Brookline, and um, the Brattle Theater in Cambridge because uh, they show a lot of uh, stuff that they don't show anywhere else. A lot of art house stuff, and then they show a lot of weird stuff at Coolidge. Like they do midnight movies every weekend, which is really funny. Oh, yeah. Like that's how I saw Exorcist uh, not that long ago. Even if you see the movie a million oh, wow. times, when you see it on the big screen, it's a totally different experience. Oh, I know. Oh, I know for sure, man. I love it. I mean, this this great thing about Los Angeles, we also have those revival repertory yeah. type houses. I mean, I raised my daughter early on in, in some classics like, you know, Ford's The Searchers or even the Marx Brothers, which we, you know, own. And I remember us going to, um, I don't know, I guess it was eight years ago or so, they had a, um, a couple of the Marx Brothers films at the Egyptian Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. And Harpo's son was there, and some biographers oh, were there awesome. to talk, introduce. So it was great to see Animal Crackers on the big screen. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, filmed from awesome. 1932 or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, it's totally different. 
you know, to see it on the big screen. Yeah, I agree. There's, no, uh, I've seen I some it. silent movies on the big screen, and some have had, like, live orchestras, and it's just the, like, I saw the... Oh, I have two, man. I love that stuff. I have two. I love that. I remember seeing, a, a, back in the 80s, I saw um, Coppola had, uh, what, he, he restored and uh, released the uh, Abel Gans's Napoleon, and yeah. his father, Car- Carmine Coppola, um, composed this whole new score for it. So they had a live orchestra at Radio City and it was sh- showing Abel Gantz's Napoleon. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, there's just something about it. It was um, for Halloween two years ago, they had um, uh, um, Phantom of the Opera, the original, you know, the, the, old, the old silent one. And then they oh, had... Uh, the uh, Lon Chaney. Yeah, yeah. And with the live orchestra, it was like, it honestly was one of the best yeah, experiences yeah. I ever had at the theater. I just loved it. It's extraordinary. I know. I remember when I was in college, I remember seeing, I don't know if it was in college or at MoMA in New York, but seeing City Lights, Chaplin's film on the big screen. Mm-hmm. That is one of the greatest films ever made, period. Yeah. I don't care, silent, talky, whatever. You see silent uh, City Lights on the big screen. Because he, he shot that, and talkies had already taken place. And there's this famous mm-hmm. still photo of Einstein showing up at the premiere of City Lights. It was like 1932 like so, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's wild to think about, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's how daring and how, you know, of, of a fuck you to the <laughs> industry. He says, nah, I'm going to make a silent film still. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah, was, just... that's an extraordinarily moving movie. I mean, that's that moving, that, it's so moving at the end when the blind girl realizes that this, guy who's been her you know um person that's been helping her out mm-hmm. um is this tramp mm-hmm. it's so heartbreaking oh my gosh mm-hmm. that's what i always get annoyed like on facebook if i say i'm going to a movies or whatever and someone like they'll be like oh why don't you just download it it's like for one thing i don't want to you know rip the movie off and it's just it's yeah. not the same experience watching it on your computer or your phone or something. No. Even on your TV is watching it on the big screen. So, I, I you know, I no. always try to encourage people to, because I'm sure everyone, wherever you are, you have some type of theater like that in some distance from you. So you should, you know, go out there and try to support stuff like that because once those theaters close, usually they're just gone forever. That's true. That's true. You know, fortunately, uh, Tarantino has yeah. bought out the uh, new Beverly Cinema in Hollywood and uh, he is a very, uh, very intent on keeping that experience alive. Mm-hmm. He, he shows a double bill every night and, uh, he's got a huge library himself, but it gets a lot of films loaned to him for the experience. So it's, it's great. And he keeps it very cheap. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the ticket price is. Something like six or $8 to go see his movie. Uh, that's that's great. extraordinary. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. So uh, how can people follow Prodigy online? Uh, well, I know that on Facebook, uh, there's a Prodigy site, Prodigy the Film. So that's definitely the way. Go on Facebook and, and like it and follow Prodigy. Mm-hmm. And uh, how about yourself? Uh, are you... Uh, do you, I, you can find you? me on Facebook, too. I'm still, uh, you know... I have to get, I have to join the 21st century and get on Twitter and Instagram, but I'm, I'm not yet. So uh-huh. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'm old school and watching yeah. films on the big screen. I'm afraid of, you know, getting, you know, I just did a podcast and they say, well, we have a half a million viewers, you know, and I'm like, Oh God, do I want a half a million followers? <laughs> I mean, I know Ricky Gervais gets in a lot of trouble for his tweets and I, I could just imagine me getting in trouble as well. Uh-huh. you know <laughs> tweeting things you know just like do i really want that dialogue i don't know maybe part of me does i think i'm an, enough of a narcissist as it is mm-hmm. but <laughs> you can find me if you want to find me you can find me for sure i'm on facebook and i don't care <laughs> yeah it's, uh, it's kind of funny uh years uh i think this i forget the year but uh one of the listeners of the show and at the time we weren't on uh facebook and they were like oh this is new think facebook I think you guys should, you know, get on there. And I was like, ah, I don't really care. He's like, well, I'll make, it's okay if I make you a, a Facebook page for the Without Your Head. I was like, yeah, go ahead. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, years later, it's uh, thousands of people on there. But 
I just I always think it's funny that like I just thought ah eh, whatever I mean uh, yeah. well, that's the, I that's the way I am too I'm very careful yeah I'm very cavalier about the whole thing too I mean really uh-huh. you know it's it's like uh, gosh I I mean I'm I'm, I'm I, you know, I I hardly watch I I mean I do watch TV occasionally certainly if I audition for shows I watch a couple episodes yeah. but I don't spend a whole lot of time I know it's, it seems sacrilegious. And, and, you know, for a lot of people, very stupid for me not to watch TV, but I feel like I wouldn't read if I, if I watch so much TV, you know, and I, I don't really, part of me also doesn't like to watch a lot of other actors. Part of me is, is competitive and, 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 and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of jaded. I, I've seen, you know, I've watched a lot of films. I've, I see films. I'm not living in a hovel somewhere or a hole somewhere <laughs> my head in uh-huh. my head in the sand. You know, I mean, there were a lot of good films this year. I loved uh, Shape of Water and Lady Bird and, and uh, The Square, which was amazing. Did you see that foreign film, The Square? No, no I haven't seen it. nominated for Best Foreign Film. Very interesting movie. Um, but there were, you know, I go see a lot of films in the theater as well. And uh, um, so I'm not completely shut out, but I think there's so much content out there constantly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's like, do I really want to get into that? People are so obsessed with Game of Thrones or obsessed with Homeland or obsessed with the new girl, like my daughter is or whatever, you know, right. I mean, you just, it's like your life. Do I really want to get involved? I mean, I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> occasionally I watch a ball game, you know, or a documentary. Cause to me, that's, I'd rather watch something that's real. That's going on in real time. Mm-hmm. Like I might watch the Mets game this afternoon mm-hmm. and, you know, <laughs> Or I, I really like a good documentary, you know, mm-hmm. like, like Brando used to watch Canon camera. Do you know that Brando would watch Canon camera because it was like, <laughs> you know, before, you know, it's like surveillance videos. You can watch people yeah. actually without them knowing they're being filmed, see how they really behave mm-hmm. in real life mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. knowing they're being watched. Yeah. So that's a really interesting thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Did Did you see uh, Did you see the documentary um, Lost Soul about Richard Stanley and uh, about? Oh yeah, of, I did. Oh my gosh, yeah, I actually went to the. Um, there was a, a movie theater. I think it might have closed now. The silent movie theater um, in on Fairfax in Los Angeles, but uh, there was a screening of it there, and uh, Stanley showed up, the director, mm-hmm. and he talked about it. Um, sad, yes. really sad what happened to him. Yeah, it was, uh, actually one of my favorite interviews on the website, the uh, cheap plug is I, I interviewed Richard Stanley last year. It's like two and a half hours and I think it's fantastic. And, um, but, uh, yeah, the movie itself is both, it's very, uh, depressing that you see like what, cause he's so into this. This is like his dream project. And then to see it all, you know, fall yeah. apart and then really didn't, hasn't really done anything since then. It's also there's also a lot of uh, it's there's also a lot of humor in it at the same time. It's uh I don't know this th- that whole documentary I just I just love that whole thing. Oh, I was I, I, I loved it. It was great. Yeah, I love films like that. You know, The Burden of Dreams by, by about Herzog. Yes, Werner uh, Herzog, or yeah. the uh, the one that uh, Coppola's wife scene? made about Apocalypse Now. Uh, yeah, uh, what's I don't know if it's I don't think it's called the horror, but I know what you mean. I saw that one. The um, there's yeah, also but, uh, one my yeah, best the scene with uh, with um, about Herzog and uh, and uh, Klaus Kinski. Oh yeah, my best scene. I love yeah. that film. Yeah, with the where you see that footage of uh, Kinski with the butterflies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's an interesting fellow. I, I, you know, I watched all of Herzog's movies, and I've gone to screenings yeah. that Herzog's been at, and uh, Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre, The Wrath of God, and. Uh, you know, that's my favorite. That's you know, probably my favorite. And it's a great thing about being in, in a city like New York is that you mm-hmm. get to go to these screenings and the directors show up. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Werner that's great Herzog that you got to interview. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it was well. Werner Herzog actually it was at uh, the Coolidge here in Boston a couple weeks ago, which was really cool. But uh, but yeah, Richard Stanley and he didn't know because um, I just do audio, but uh, unless I'm in the same area, somebody I have videos, but. So it was Skype, and he thought it was a, a Skype uh, video uh, interview, which I wish I would have uh, figured out how to record that beforehand. 
because he was yeah. in his abandoned. Uh, he really does live in like an abandoned castle in France. So it was just like this crazy background, <laughs> and he's like lighting up whatever he's smoking. And I was like, man, was he wearing I... his big uh, cowboy hat yes, there? Well, he was wearing the big hat. And I was like, this is like really <laughs> surreal. I wish I had. I wish I was recording the video. <laughs> Oh, my listen. Lord. I remember seeing that movie, The Island of Dr. Moreau, in the theater. Because I was uh-huh. such a brand. I mean, I would see Brando in anything. But it was such a bad movie. And um, I love how Frankenheimer supposedly said about Val Kilmer, I wouldn't work with Val Kilmer again, even if it was the life story of Val Kilmer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's an actor that probably shot himself. Oh, I mean, yeah. Talk about he throwing it all out. away. Oh, yeah. It was as big as he could be. And then uh, pretty much just fell off the earth. He's kind of making a comeback the last couple of years, but. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but, uh, obviously he's very. Ta- I remember I loved him yeah. as Jim Morrison. I thought he was great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I saw that at the theater. And I always remember there was like these two. I guess old hippies in front of me. And the whole time they were talking to the care, to the screen, they're like, don't do it, Jim. Oh no. And I'm thinking you, are you going to think you're going to change time or like, but it was was a fun experience. So um, another documentary, I have it here somewhere is, um, because I always find it, it's super depressing. I think Uh, lost in La Mancha. um, Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. Terry Gilliam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they referenced that. I just saw this film, uh, Voyage to Spain, the one with Steve Coogan and uh, and uh, Rob Brydon. Do you ever see those films? The, uh, no. Their travel, where they play basically versions of themselves, and they're supposedly going to be uh, reviewing restaurants. They travel a, a trip to Italy. One's called The Trip. It's just mm-hmm. Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan. I think yeah. you'd enjoy them. They're a great, they're a great sense of humor, and they. You know they they do they sort of battle impersonations. They do battling Michael Caine mm-hmm. or Al Pacino or and so this last one they they do a trip through Spain and they mention that Lost in La Mancha film. Oh, nice. They also are staying in this castle where supposedly Brando, going back to Brando referencing here, uh-huh. uh, Brando was uh, played the Pope in the um, that Christopher Columbus movie towards the end of his yeah. life. Yeah, they're yeah. sitting in the room. And mm-hmm. so they're impersonating Brando in this room. And, uh, you know, Rob Ryden's doing it. And uh, Coogan's like, why are you, you doing him as the Godfather? He's not the Godfather. Why are you doing that? Because you, you, um, um, you, are you a Catholic? Are you, uh, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> anyway, you should check it out. It's on Netflix. Um, yeah, it's very entertaining. It's lightweight, but it's they're very entertaining. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I like all different. It depends what kind of mood you're in. Uh, yeah. You like dark stuff, light stuff, whatever. Like I said, if, I think if, if it's good, I like it. Uh, when you mentioned earlier about Sounds of Lambs, if it's horror, there is like a lot of horror people who will argue like genre films. Like, you know, they'll just yeah. fight about like Sounds of Lambs thriller. It's not horror. Sevens, you know, uh, Thriller, not horror, right. alien, science right. fiction, and uh, I don't know. I just I, don't I mean, is really aliens? Aliens like, is a, is that a horror or thriller? You know? Yeah, yeah, and it's like I, I to me, it's just like, well, would I like it less or more if I considered horror or science fiction? Like, no. I'm, so, what difference does it make? I don't. Know. I mean, uh, Sixth Sense is a great film. Um, yeah, that's what is. That's not really a horror film, but I guess it verges into that genre a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Another one, Shape of Water. A lot of people, uh, you argue I about. Mean, last it. night they had uh, on the TV. We were just scrolling here, and uh, Beetlejuice was on again, uh-huh. which is such a funny film. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's certainly not horror, but there's aspects of it. I mean, they have these ghosts. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I mean, I consider comedy horror. Again, it's like. Uh, to me, I just don't really get wrapped up in what genre movie. If you enjoy, you enjoy it. That's how I look at it. Exactly, exactly. A good film is a good film. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not gonna. You're not gonna. I wouldn't think anyway. You wouldn't be like, oh, I don't like this movie now because it's uh, considered horror, <laughs> or I like it now because it's considered you know science fiction or something. That would just be bizarre. Right. 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 Well, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. 
It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, Neil, likewise. So I hope people kick. check out. Yeah, I hope people check out Prodigy. I really enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, I see a lot of screeners uh, throughout the, for doing the show, and uh, I have to admit, a lot of them don't finish. But uh, Prodigy, like, uh, it held my attention. I really, uh, I really dug the movie, and it, when I see something I like, I like to you know let everyone know about it. Well, thank you so much, and I appreciate um, your support and uh, helping to spread the word and. And uh, thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. Oh, uh, real quick, another documentary that popped my mind because I watched it. Uh, I was really sick a couple years ago, and I spent months in the hospital and rehab. And oh, so I sorry. watch a lot of lot. Thank you. I'm better now, but I uh, watch a lot of uh, all kinds of stuff. I binge watch some TV shows, and, but um, uh, Life Itself, the uh, Roger Ebert documentary. And when I watched oh, it, I was, oh yeah, I, I haven't was, seen it. Yeah, I loved it. It was um. Because I, I watch it as a weird frame mind because I was uh, dying, and uh, oh and then this is about the the death of you know Roger Ebert, and it's very at first like you think it's going to be very depressing and it is, but by the end of it it's like uplifting because he's like come to terms with it and he's happy with his life yeah. and so uh, yeah. it ends up being a really uplifting movie. Uh, I I really That's and I grew great, up you know man. watching Cisco and Ebert so it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, did you see? You know, we were staying at a hotel in our college tour here, and I was I got to watch that HBO thing about Gary Shandling that Judd Apatow made. Yeah, did you see that? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's awesome. That was another. Yeah, I love Gary Shandling show. And, I mean, that's also and, uh, him Shandling dealing with his imminent death and uh, how you know beautifully he was handling it all and got very uh, spiritual and loving. You know, and um, all, he touched all these people's lives, mm-hmm. and it was a really sweet, sweet movie. Yeah. Do you, Do you know who Angus Scrim is? Um, he played the tall man in the Phantasm movies. No, no, so, I don't. So uh, we, uh, my friend at the time, Annabelle, used to be on the show. We interviewed him. It was It wasn't much before before he died, and he was really yeah. open about knowing that he was he was dying. He's very old. And, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, that was, some people think it's depressing again, but I don't know. I found something uplifting about it because he was happy about all the things he's done. And, uh, he was, you know, came to terms with, uh, you know, the, the, his life was coming to an end. And, uh, so to me, it was a real special interview. It's very, it's great, man. It's great that you got a chance to do that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, he's well. You, I'm sure you saw the one uh, that uh, Scorsese did on George Harrison. Do you see that one? I, ha- I haven't seen like, that actually. It was on. I think it was on Netflix. It may still be. Um, uh, it's a three hour. There's an intermission, and it's really beautiful. And there's a guy that also. I mean, just talk about a guy that uh, came to terms with his uh, death. You know, his son Danny's in it. And uh, um, all everybody's interviewed in the film. Of course, you know they had complete mm-hmm. access to everyone and his wife. And and uh, you know, Danny says, you know, um, you know, I'm I'm not going to be around. And uh, um, you know, this is all sort of an illusion here. Um, I love you very much, but you know, this is just a temporary world we're in. You know, kind of thing. And you know, he was so. I mean, talk about a guy, <laughs> sort of like. You know, he just basically said, you know, the only reason I'm here anymore is just to be a father. You know, and I kind of mm-hmm. feel that that sense in a way, you know, like you sort of served your purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nothing he wanted to accomplish anymore. He had wonderful relationships. He had, you know, he had a, a incredible how many diverse relationships he had. He, uh, what's his name? Jackie Stewart, the race car driver. Oh, he had, you know, his friendships with the people from Monty Python. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a very diverse uh, group of friends. You know, uh, obviously people from the spiritual world, the musical world, and they all sort of blended together. Yeah. But at the same time, he was like, uh, you know, I'm just, um, you know, waiting here. You know, you're sort of living. I think it was called living in the material world, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he, he would just like live on his estate and get up early in the morning. He, he refused to let anybody else uh, work on the landscaping of the land. He'd be out there with a tractor or figuring out where a certain rock or pond should be or a certain plant and uh it was sort of his meditation but it was it's a really life-affirming uh film to watch i think i I think you'd enjoy it 
Yeah, I'd definitely like to watch that. I just read something recently about him, and since you mentioned uh, Python and the um, his whole, because he created a studio basically just to, to fund uh, Life of Brian, so he could you know exactly so he could see it be made, which I thought was like a amazing story, you know. Yeah, yeah, they had, it, like, they basically you know, come in. Uh-huh. I know. He said, "Listen, I'll, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. I'll make this production company. Let's just. I want to see this film." Yeah, <laughs> I want to see the film, and he he himself showed up as an extra. You, you see him in this film as one of the uh, whatever um, followers. Yeah, in the background, he had he certainly had the facial hair and the hair for it. So he just <laughs> yeah, put him in this. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Well, again, it's awesome to talk to you, and uh, I'll love to have you back sometime. Yeah, next yeah next time let's just do it again, man. 